Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Well, we're continuing our series this morning called Straight Out of Context. And I don't know about you, but I've really been enjoying sharing it. And based upon the feedback I've received, uh, you've been enjoying listening to it, which is great. And so basically, this is a series uh, whereby we have been looking at some of the most well-known and widely used scriptures that have been more often than not used out of context. They've been misquoted and misused. And over the first few weeks, we've looked at ask anything in my name, week number one. Week number two was do not judge. Week number three, plans to prosper you, says the Lord, Jeremiah chapter 29. Uh, Week number four was the root of all evil. Week number five was I can do all things. And the last time uh, uh, Kath spoke, and that was all things are good. And so that's week number six. And we're up to part seven. And I will look at today uh, another well-known but misused verse in the Bible. And it's simply found in James chapter four, verse seven. And it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is another example of a well-known yet often misused verse. And like any verse that is well-known and misused, it leads to confusion, frustration and disappointment. And this particular verse is no exception. I don't know about you, but I've been to enough prayer meetings in my time where the devil has been bound. Anyone know what I'm talking about? I mean, I remember one particular prayer meeting whereby there was a particular man of God who had a prophetic edge to his ministry. At least that's what we were led to believe. And I never forget what he said and how he prayed. He grabbed the microphone And he did in his best way possible. He said, we as a company of people, we resist you, devil. You ever been one of those prayer meetings? And we bind you, devil, in the name of Jesus. (laughs) And as he was praying this particular prayer, This particular prayer that he prayed was confirmed by a vision that he had. And he told us that he saw the church wrapping ropes around the devil, whereby he was bound for all time and eternity. And I don't know about you, but I like that thought. You know, and I remember leaving that meeting thinking, whoa, it's a done deal. I mean, that's the end of that, surely. I I mean, if that is true, then that's a good day. The devil is bound for time and eternity. I mean, that can only equal one thing, happy days ahead. Have you ever been in one of those prayer meetings? Have you ever prayed those prayers? Bind you, devil, in the name of Jesus. Unfortunately, the works of the enemy are evident today as much as ever before. And sadly, 
Some of the people that prayed those great prayers are no longer walking with Jesus. They've given into temptation. They're no longer in church or serving in ministry at all. And if we have to be honest with ourselves, we would have to agree that we struggle to resist the donut, let alone the devil. I mean, come on, church, let's get real. You know, let's not set the bar too high. Let's just start with a donut. We struggle to resist donuts, let alone the devil. And so when it comes to interpreting the Bible correctly, we've learned a few things. And I know this is very repetitive, but that's a good thing because I want us to get a hold of this. And so that even when we've moved beyond this series, we will remember this thought. When it comes to understanding the Bible correctly, we've learned three things. One, that we need to know the context, and that is who wrote the Bible or the particular book. To whom was it written? What was the major theme? What was God's intention behind that letter? Secondly, we need to interpret Scripture with other Scriptures. The best way to understand the Bible is with the Bible itself. And thirdly, we need to apply that which we have learned. In other words, the Bible is not necessarily just a book to be studied so much as a letter to be lived. Amen? And so with this in mind, we want to read this Scripture in its proper context. Now, James was written by a man of the same name, James. And James was the half-brother of Jesus, meaning that he had the same mother, different father. So he was a half-brother of Jesus and he was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And he wrote this letter to all those congregational members that had been scattered from Jerusalem into the uttermost parts of the earth due to the persecution that the church experienced in Jerusalem that we read about in Acts chapter 8. So James was leading a company of people, they scattered, and so he wrote a letter to all the scattered believers around the world. And that's why this letter is very Jewish in nature. The major theme of this letter is a Christianity that is um, characterised by good deeds and a faith that works. Amen. And so what I want to do is read from James chapter 4, starting at verse 1, right through to verse 10. James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, I know that we as a church don't ever have fights or quarrels, and uh, this is for other churches. So let's just, let's just, you know, just go along with it for a while, okay? It says, Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. And so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit as has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. There it is again, grace. Everyone say grace. That is why Scripture said God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. And here it is, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Come near to God and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. What is the big theme of this portion of Scripture? It's actually submission, not resistance. The big theme of this passage of Scripture is submission. Everyone say submission. It's submission, not resistance. In other words, it's about having God and not not having the devil. This is a massive, massive game changer. The context of this passage of Scripture is about believers having God, not not having the devil. And there's a big difference in those two things. It's about experiencing a victorious Christ, not the absence of the enemy. It's about the secondary cause giving way to the primary cause. Let me explain it this way. For those of you who have ever quit smoking or desire to quit smoking, or for those of you who have ever quit junk food or desire to quit some junk food, um, that's what we call a secondary cause. And if you focus on the secondary cause, you're going to struggle resisting the cigarette and you're going to struggle resisting the donuts and the chips and the fries and the chocolate. How many know what I'm on about? They are the secondary cause. The primary cause would be about having a healthy lifestyle. A healthy lifestyle that could give you a quality and a quantity of life that you would otherwise not have while you're addicted to these other things. And our focus has to be on the primary cause and not the secondary cause. Whenever our focus is on the secondary cause, that's what we get. So if you're sitting there thinking, I mustn't smoke, I mustn't smoke, I'm not going to smoke. Today, I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to smoke a cigarette. Hey, Andre, I'm not going to smoke a cigarette. You know, and I'm going to confirm it. Dave, I'm tell- I've just like told Andre, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to smoke. I'm pretty soon we find ourselves doing what we didn't want to do, oh wretched man that we are. Because our focus is on the wrong thing. Whereas if we focus on the primary cause and that is getting fitter and healthier and being uh, having a quality of life that we've never known before, being able to uh, be there for our children and our grandchildren and maybe even our grandchildren's children. Amen then it becomes a lot easier to be able to resist those things that we struggled with in the past. Resistance is a byproduct of a submitted life. Without submission, resistance is futile. You may have heard it said resistance is futile. Well, without submission, that is absolutely true. Resistance is not about how strong we are. It has more to do with how submitted we are. And probably the best example we see of that is found in Matthew chapter 4 and again in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus, who was led by the Spirit to go into the desert, where He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that time, the devil came to tempt Him. And on three occasions, the devil tempted Jesus and Jesus submitted Himself to the Word of God And then the coolest thing happens. It says the devil left. We don't see Jesus resisting the devil so much as we see Jesus submitting to the Father. And when Jesus submitted to the Father, the devil got sick of that. He got tired of that and he just left. 
If you want the devil to leave you alone, if you want him to just pack up, then submit yourselves to God because that is the primary cause. Resisting the devil is the secondary cause. If you focus on the devil, I bind you devil in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I bind you. If you focus on that, you're just going to get devil. But if we focus on God, you get a lot of God. It's about having God and not not having the devil. Are you with me? Now on that, I just want to make a point that we're not here to minimise, nor are we here to deny the power that the enemy has. In actual fact, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, it says that we are not to be unaware of the enemy's schemes. We should not be flippant when it comes to addressing the enemy or talking about the enemy. The Bible has a lot to say about him. It says that he's a liar in John chapter 8, verse 44. It says that he blinds the minds of unbelievers that he masquerades as an angel of light, that he has the power to perform signs and wonders. We also know, according to Matthew chapter 4, that he tempts people into sin, just like he tried to tempt Jesus into sinning. We also know, as we read on, that he steals the Word and chokes faith from people. We know according to John chapter 10, verse 10, that he's a murderer. He comes to kill, to steal and to destroy. And sadly, we see a lot of that in people's lives. He fights the plans of God. And according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says he's the accuser of Christians. He's the one who says, you're no good. You're not good enough. You don't deserve grace. Hey, this message might apply to everyone but you. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to accuse you uh, through his lies. And while this is true and we need to be aware of it, the devil should never be our focus. He may be powerful, but he's not all powerful. And our focus should be on God, on him who is all powerful. The good news is this, the devil's been defeated and we have been given the victory through Christ and our task is to now to live in that victory. We need to let the devil know that he has been defeated. And if you're taking notes today, if you ever write the word devil or Satan, use a small d and a small s. And I don't even care if you misspell the word. But never, he does not deserve a capital letter at the beginning of his name. Capital G, God, small s, Satan. Are you with me? And so we need to let the devil know that he's been defeated. And the way we do that is through submitting ourselves to God on a daily basis. See, submission is not a one soft thing. It's not a one-time thing. Submission is something we do on a daily basis. And submission is seen through many ways. And I want to highlight three of them found in the book of James this morning. And they are our motives, our mouth and our movements. And so the first one is our motives. Everyone say motives. Our submission is seen through our motives. And motives are what we think and how we feel. James poses this question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? 
And your answer to that question may be, oh, it's because of my job. If I had a better job, I would be a lot happier. It's my job. Some of you might say, it's the woman I'm married to, or some of the women might say, it's the man I'm married to. Some of you who have kids might say, oh, it's the kids. I'll tell you what causes fights and quarrels in our homes. It's those little terrors that we call children. They cause the fights and quarrels in our home. And James doesn't have a bar of that. Some of the parents are nudging you, you gotta listen up and he's talking to you. Well, I'm actually talking to the parents as well. I am talking to the kids, but I'm talking to the parents as well because James is not suggesting that for a minute. In actual fact, James is saying it's none of those things. James is actually saying, what causes fights and quarrels among you? You do. I do. We do. He says they come when your desires that are raging within you, your quarrels, your arguments come from the battle within. They don't come from outer circumstances. The common denominator to all your problems is you and me. It's the person that we look at in the mirror. That, that's the common denominator to all of our problems. James goes on to spell it out. He says, let me put it this way. You want something, but you don't get it. For example, you might want a pay rise, but you don't get it. There could be a promotion at work and you didn't get the promotion. You wanted something, but you didn't get it. You wanted to be the first to get the latest iPhone, but you weren't the first. You wanted a gold medal, but you didn't get it. Maybe you wanted someone who's on the Olympic team to get more gold medals and they didn't get it, and you're upset with them. I think our media should be ashamed of themselves, to be honest. Putting young girls on the front cover saying, what a catastrophe with her name, Kate Tastrophe. What a... what. How disgusting. How disgusting. But what causes people to write that, that is what rages within them. We thought they should have done better. And so we feel entitled to have a shot at people like that. The result is that you kill and covet, James says. Maybe you don't kill literally, but we kill through our words. Some of the headlines about some of our athletes are just quite horrible. Think about being in your early 20s and having to read on the front cover of the newspaper, national newspaper, seeing your face with certain things that are being said about it. And they hold themselves with such honour. It's an amazing thing. See, Paul brings a contrast between godliness and selfishness. He brings a contrast between a godly person and a selfish person. See, selfishness is a major avenue used by the devil to entice us. You can't take a complete stand against an enemy with whom we are standing in some measure of agreement. You've got to get this. I'm going to say it again. You cannot take a complete stand against an enemy with whom we are standing in some measure of agreement. The big th thought, the big theme is us submitting to God. 
But when God is asking us to do something, forgive your enemies. And we say, I don't want to do that. We're siding with the enemy. And the enemy is saying, that's right, you shouldn't have to. Who do they think they are? I'm on your side. I agree with you. And I want to tell you, the devil at that moment is not going to flee from you. He's going to be very close to you. And to be honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, we actually, we like the company of the enemy at that moment in time because he makes us feel good about how we're feeling about others. But if you start to say, you know what? The Bible says that I need to forgive my enemy. I'm going to start walking in submission to what God says. Just by virtue of the stand we've made, we're going to create a gap between us and the enemy. And the enemy's not going to want a part of us when we just tell him to be quiet as we start following the ways of God. Is this making sense this morning? When we aren't fully submitted, the devil may not flee. It's as simple as that. When we're not fully submitted to God, the enemy's going to be right there by our side, cheering us on. That's right. They did hurt you. Who do they think they are? And now they want you to forgive them. No way. They should forgive you. That's right. At that moment, he's no longer your enemy. He's your ally. And he will not flee. See, submission is very different than obedience. And the difference is seen in the motivation. Obedience is done because we have to do it. Both obedience and submission can follow a given command, but obedience is forced while submission is willing. Submission is done because you want to do it. It's done out of a desire to please the one in authority. Paul David Tripp says it this way. We disobey God not because we don't have the God-given grace to obey. See, when we, when we disobey God, it's not because the grace is not available for us to obey Him. He goes on to say, but because we love something more than the God who gives us the grace to obey. When we disobey God, it's not because there's not grace to obey Him, it's because we love something more. When we don't want to love our enemies, and we actually want to, we want to fester over our hatred, and we want to hold on to our bitterness, at that moment we forfeit the grace that could be available to overcome the bitterness because we love the bitterness and we love the frustration more than receiving grace. But submission, true submission, is not about doing the right thing. It's about doing it with the right motive. And it's about saying, you know what? I would rather be with God. And if being with God means letting go of my offence and loving my enemies for the sake of being with God, I'll do that. And if we could walk in that kind of submission, guess what? The distance between you and the enemy is going to be a massive gap. And you won't have to bind nor loose anything. You're just following the one in whom you love. The big theme is submission, not resistance. Submission is seen in our motives, but it's also seen in our mouth, in what we say and how we say it. James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Then he goes on to say, and when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives. And both of these are a submission issue. 
James is saying, you do not submit your words to the Word of God. In actual fact, if you read James chapter 3, James has a lot to say about the tongue and what we say. In James chapter 3, verse 7, it says, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no one can tame the tongue. This is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James says no man can tame the tongue, but he's implying that God alone can. And the only time our tongue is tamed is when it's submitted to the Word of God. It's the only time we can tame our tongue, when it's submitted to the Word of God. Again, we see that in the example of Jesus. When he was in the desert, having been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, who would agree you'd be a little bit hungry? And the first temptation comes in the form of food. And Jesus does not get into a discussion with the enemy. He doesn't start saying, well, you know, what kind of bread would it be exactly? Because, you know, you know, it'd have to be, you know, kind of like gluten-free. I, I kind of, you know. He doesn't get into a discussion. He actually declares the Word of God. It is written. Second temptation, he doesn't discuss it. He declares it is written. Third temptation, he doesn't discuss it. He again declares it is written. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And it says, and with that, the devil left. I feel a real word for us as a church, based upon what we face on a daily basis as believers, is to stop discussing and start declaring the Word of God. Everyone wants to drag you into a discussion. Everyone wants to drag you into what do you think and what do you feel and what do you say about this and what do you say about that? When Jesus would have none of that, Jesus' example to us is just submit your words to the Word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. Amen. The Bible says in Joel chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Let the weakling say, I am strong. In other words, it didn't say, wait till you feel strong and, and, and you've watched the Rocky movie again and uh, you're feeling really good about yourself and then declare that you're strong. No, no, no. He says, let the weakling, when you're down, when you're tired, when you feel like giving up, when you feel like giving in, when you've had enough and you just can't go on anymore, declare that you're strong. Let the weakling say, I am strong. So if you're feeling weak this morning, don't say, I feel weak. Say, I'm strong. Because your feelings will mislead you. The Bible declares that in Christ, we are strong. In Christ, we win. You know, when uh, I was in hospital, and in actual fact, this whole year could be written off as a massive discussion. Just imagine, you know, why, why did Chris have to die? Why did your youth pastor have to die? And why is there a young girl on the front row here today and she got hit by lightning and she's alive? And Well, let's discuss that. Let's discuss that. It's kind of like when Nehemiah was trying to build the wall and the enemy said, come on, come down here to the plain of Ono and let's discuss and let's talk about this. Let's reason together. And Jeremiah said, oh no, we're not going to do that. It went down as well as it did in the 80s, that joke. But anyway. <laughs> but we've got to have this attitude that we're not going to discuss and get involved in all these things. Why, why is it that uh, I get this blood infection? Why is it that my wife has a health scare? Why is it that my heart gets damaged? And at the age of 47, I have to have a heart surgery. I mean, it's crazy. 
And there's lots of people who would love to come alongside and have a discussion with me. And we had a hospital staff just agreeing really with the craziness of it all. No one could believe that someone as young as me would be having this particular operation. In actual fact, when I went in, the day I was admitted, Danny Guglielmici was waiting there for me. He came a little bit early thinking I'd been admitted earlier, but that's by the by. But I said, look, you're here now, Danny, you might as well stay. And so we got admitted to a room and I was there sitting on the bed and Danny was sitting in a chair and the nurse came in and she's, you know, talking about my operation, but she's not looking at me. And I'm thinking, how rude that the nurse is talking to me, but not looking at me. And I thought, seriously, nursing 101. I mean, just look somebody in the eye when you speak to them. It was like one of our 10 rainbow commandments with our kids when they were younger. It was something we drummed into our kids from the ages of two and three. One of our rainbow commandments was, thou shalt look a parent in the eye when they are talking to you. It's just one of those things, look them in the eye, look me in the eye, look look at me, look at me, look at me. It's just rude not to look at someone when they're talking. And I'm sitting there listening to this woman talk, but she's not looking at me. And I'm getting annoyed at her as she's talking to me, but looking at Danny. And then it clicked. She thought Danny was in for the operation, not me. And so we had a big laugh about that. In other words, it's not normal. And every nurse who came in confirmed, this is not normal. Wow, you're too young. And at that moment, I had to grab a hold of those thoughts. Because the moment we start discussing and talking about those things, it can spiral you down into a place you don't want to go or you don't want to be and you certainly don't want to live. We're not here to discuss that stuff. We have to start declaring the Word of God. And I believe part of my miraculous recovery is because of this very point. Just declaring. I don't know why certain things happen, but this I know. God's still in control. God's incredible. He's been amazing to me. I've lived an incredible life and He's given me incredible health. And by God's grace, I'm going to be out of this hospital before anybody else based upon the operation I've had. And that's exactly what happened. And even me being up here doing what I'm doing today is part of God's grace, God's miracle. And that's come just because I've declared the Word of God because the Bible says, let the weak say, I am strong. And I want to tell you, I feel strong today because I am strong because my position in Christ does not change whether I'm in hospital out of hospital, in a hospital bed or not. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change. We're not fighting for a position of victory. We're fighting from a position of victory. I'm always a winner. Even when I was under the knife and even when I was out of it, I'm still a winner because God is in control of my life. And the only way I was going to die on the operating table is if God wanted me to go home and be with Him. That's it. I'm bulletproof until God wants me to go and be with Him. And so are you. And we can live in that confidence and we can have a boldness and we can have a spring in our step as a result and we can have a glint in our eye as a result. We don't have to be worried about all these things and what people are talking about and discussing because we live according to a higher order. Amen. And I'd rather thank God that I'm in Australia in hospital having this operation. I remember saying that, God, I'm so glad I'm in Australia. Some of you complain about the hospital in Adelaide. The worst experience in Adelaide is better than most other parts in the world. Just be grateful. And I'm also grateful that if you're going to have this operation, I'd rather have it in 2016 than year 16 AD. I mean, seriously, I think you would agree that the things have progressed a little in the last 2,000 years. So if you're going to have this operation, you might as well have it now. Thank you, Lord. God is good. I'm born for such a time as this. If anyone's going to have an operation, have it in 2016. Thank you, Lord, for that. Amen? It's good. So we've got to watch what we say. We've got to submit our words 
to the word of God. And then and only then is our tongue tamed. And number three, our movements as the band come up, that'd be great. Number three, our movements, which is what we do and where we go. I'm going to spell this out and make it real simple for you, as James did. The greatest thing you can do to submit to God is just do what he says. Every one of you parents know this to be true. If you want there to be peace in the home, kids, just do as you're told. Just do as you're told. And so it is with God. James chapter 1, verse 2, or 22, sorry, says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. In other words, you can go to church, listen to the word of God, you can read the Bible, listen to the word of God, and still deceive yourself. And probably the greatest way we do that is when we listen to the Word of God and think about that Word for somebody else. That's probably the greatest way we deceive ourselves. When we think, oh, I hope Benno's listening to that. He needs to hear this this morning. And he does. He really does. I hope you are listening. But, <laughs> but so do all of us. We all do. The point is Benno does need to, but no more than anybody else. Dave certainly needs to hear this this morning. And so does Vicky Jones. Because we're all as bad as each other. We all need this. See, genuine faith and love reveals itself in what it does. Probably a great illustration for this is having a child, a newborn baby. Yes, they are adorable. Yes, they are oh so cute and very, very cuddly. Yes. But there are things that you have to do as a parent that are anything but cute cuddly or adorable as Pete and Christy Doe recently (laughs) found out any of you who followed them on social media would see a photo of Xavier in the cot oblivious to the mess he's made I mean it's like poo central it's just everywhere it's not like a dirty nappy it's a dirty nappy a dirty cot dirty walls dirty kid Just like everywhere. Not cute, not cuddly, not adorable. (laughs) But you know what? What possesses a parent to get in there and clean them up, knowing it's probably not going to be the last time? It's not because they love it, but because they love them. There's a big difference between loving it and loving them. Any parent that loves cleaning up poo, you're a sick person. <laughs> you, you are just sick. There's no prayer for that. You're just sick. But we do it because we love them. And I'm going to be honest with you. There's some things God asks us to do I don't love. I don't even like. And if I'm really honest, I actually dislike and I find myself doing things I dislike for God because I love Him. I dislike it, but I love Him. Are you with me? And it's a sign of a surrendered, submitted life. If this life is just about what you want, that's not Christianity. Sometimes you have to stop doing some things. And sometimes you've just got to start doing some things. It's part of our responsibility as a parent. And it's part of our responsibility as a Christian.
And we're not always going to feel like it. And what I've learned to be true is that God will not do for us what he expects us to do for ourselves. He'll carry the majority of it, but there are some things he's asking us to do. That's why James says, submit yourself. He didn't say, get the congregation to submit. He said, no, you've got to submit yourself. See, this notion that you can come to me and say, Tony, I want you to hold me accountable. I can't hold you accountable. You can only hold yourself accountable. Because I can ask you how you're going and you can lie to me. Only you can hold yourself accountable. I can't. You say, oh, I've got someone in my life. They speak in my life. No, no, no. Only you can hold yourself accountable. Only you can humble yourself. Only you can submit yourself. I was thinking about UFC fighting, which is quite a violent sport. But the whole nature of this sport is to get the opponent to submit. There's many ways that that can happen. It can be a clean, straight knockout. Or you get them in a particular submission hold that the opposition can't get out of and then they'll end up tapping out. God's intention is that there wouldn't be that fight. God's intention, if we can use the UFC ring as a result, God's in one corner, you're in the other. Ding, ding. And you just walk in, I'm so, I surrender, I'm sorry. It's like, it's great. Can you think about the pain you would save yourself if you did that? Can you think of that guy as he's tapping out thinking, if I just surrendered earlier, I could have saved myself a world of pain. And there's a company of people called the church that could save themselves a world of pain if we just learned to submit to God. Instead of letting life circumstances and situations get us into a hold that we can't get out of, it's like, God, help! And He will. But He wants to save us a world of pain. The moment we tap out and say, God, help! He'll be there. And that's the good news. Whatever you've done, whatever you've been through, He'll be there, tap out. But there is a better way. The better way is just walk up and say, I surrender. I submit. Save yourself a world of pain. Thank God for the grace for people who have messed up. And I thank God for the great stories of this church. But they would be the first to say, man, I wish I knew what I knew earlier. I wish I'd submitted earlier. James in chapter 4, verse 10 and uh, 8 to 10, reading the message translation says, Quit dabbling in sin. Just quit it. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious. Really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. I want to leave you with these four questions. And the four questions I've just asked myself over a long, long time. They're not something I've got off the internet. It's not something anyone's taught me. It's just something I've kind of put together for myself when it comes to my actions. These are four questions I ask myself when it comes to what I do. Number one is, what does the Bible say about it? You see, there are some very clear things that the Bible says to do and not to do. You don't have to pray about that stuff. If the Bible says do it, just do it. If the Bible says don't do it, just don't do it. You don't have to pray about it. The Bible is very clear. To our young people, and I know this applies to old ones as well, but sex before marriage, according to the Word of God, is off limits. So just don't do it. You don't have to pray about that. Is that for me, Lord? No, that's for everyone. And there's many, many examples of that in the Word of God. So number one, what does the Bible say about it? Number two, what does your conscience or the Holy Spirit say about it? 
I believe we often talk in the terms of conscience when really it's actually the Holy Spirit trying to get our attention. Sometimes those two things can be used interchangeably almost. But what does your conscience say about it? See, some things aren't for everyone, they're just for you. You know, if, if, if because of your constitution, you can't eat meat and you're a vegetarian, God bless you. But don't put that onto everybody else based upon your favourite verse that's found somewhere in Leviticus. It's not for everyone. Paul actually says, you know, if you want to eat meat, eat meat. If you want to eat vegetables, eat vegetables. He actually, if you want to be technical, he actually says those with a weaker faith don't eat meat. But anyway, that's beside the bottom. That's just, just. But we're not here to put that on people. Don't put that on people. Thirdly, what does your calling say about it? And that's something that applies to you and your calling. And when I say calling, I mean your God shape. And your God shape can be the job you're presently in. It can be the school that you presently attend. The ministry that you're involved in. We see that our Olympic athletes have abstained from social media because of the distraction that that is for their preparation. It's something that their calling and their vocation requires. I remember when our son Mitch was looking to play Federation soccer, which means he would have played on a Sunday. And you might think as a pastor's kid asking his dad, who's a pastor, whether he's allowed to play on Sunday is a no-brainer. Of course it's no. No, that's not what I said. I said, Mitch, what do you believe your calling is? What do you believe your future holds for you? I got him thinking about his future and his calling. Because if he can think about his future and his calling and his, his God shape, he can make a good decision about what he should or shouldn't do. And he went away and thought about it for a day and came back and said, Dad, I, I really believe that my future... My calling has to do with ministry and church at some capacity. I'm not sure exactly what, but I feel it's more ministry than sport. And so based upon that, what do you think you should do? And he never played Federation Soccer. Not because he wasn't allowed to, not because he was a pastor's kids. Because believe you me, we need more Christians in the sporting world. We need more Christians in the business world. We need more Christians in the entertainment world. But that cannot just be a desire that you have. It's got to be a calling. It's got to be part of your God shape. And if Mitchie's calling and God shape was to represent God the Father through Jesus Christ in the sporting arena, I want to champion that cause. But for him, he didn't feel that was for him. And so he made a decision based on that. And so I want to set you free with it comes to your kids. What does your calling, what does your future suggest for your child? If they're facing the end of year 12 and, and do they have to do tertiary education? Maybe, but maybe not. Don't make them do tertiary education just because you want them to as a parent. Weigh it up in the context of their God shape. And as a church, we're trying to help people find their God shape through courses that we do and conversations that we have. So that you wouldn't just go through life and endure it, but that you would enjoy it because you're feeling your purpose. And the last one is simply, 
What impact does it have on those around me? When I was a youth pastor looking after young kids, I chose of my own free will not to drink alcohol. Not because I'm not allowed to, not because the Bible says you can't, but because I was influential over young people. And so I made a decision not to drink alcohol, not because it's right or wrong. The Bible does not say you're not allowed to drink. It just says don't get drunk. Don't drink excessively. It doesn't say you're not allowed to drink. But for me, I felt like it would be wrong of me to drink because of who's under my care. And God will lead you through those decisions. And it's far better than legalism. It's far better than rules and regulations that we have to adhere to that have been enforced on us and imposed on us with a resist the devil mentality. If we don't make it about the devil, but we make it more about having God, God will lead you in this. And God will just graciously say, hey, look, you know, in this season of your life, drinking is probably not for you. And so I remember from the age of 19 to about 35, 36, I never drank alcohol. Today I drink like a fish. No, I don't. <laughs> No, I, I wouldn't even consider myself a drinker. I'll have the occasional alcoholic beverage, but I'm not really a drinker. But when I was involved in youth ministry, I never drank at all. And I would say to all our young youth leaders, I think that's a good thing to follow. I really do. As a parent that has two of our precious kids in youth ministry, I would say, just abstain. Because of the wisdom of it. But I'm not going to put that on you, just some wisdom. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 